As we open God's Word this afternoon, our Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 3. I'd like to read the whole chapter with focus especially on verse 15. This is after God has created man and given him a wife and placed them in the garden and commanded them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We read um, part of this a few weeks ago with Lord's Day 3, but we'll now read the whole chapter. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the, the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest 
He put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden with a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Can I draw your attention to verse 15? Spoken to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or other translations, he will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. So we see that the promised one The one spoken of in Genesis 3.15 will crush the head of the serpent, which is a theme that that we see running all throughout the Bible. We'll consider that theme especially this afternoon all the way into Revelation, which we'll read of now from Revelation chapter 12. I'm reading the first 12 verses, Revelation chapter 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God at his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, which is a place prepared by God. They should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. That theme of the serpent or dragon being overcome through suffering comes full circle. It is in many ways the theme of of the Bible, God overcoming the dragon through the death of his son and through the suffering of his people who love not their lives even unto death. We're told in Lord's Day 6 of our catechism 
that between Genesis 3 and Revelation 12, God is gracious to give uh, many signs and many pictures pointing to the fulfillment of that first gospel promise. And we're told that especially in question answer 19, page 875 in the back of your hymnals, but uh, we'll read all of Lord's Day 6, beginning at question 16, and then focusing especially on question 19 in connection with what we've just read. Uh, pages 874 and 75, we'll read together responsively, uh, beginning at question 16, where it asks, why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin, but a sinner could never pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Then who is this mediator? A true God and at the same time a true and righteous man. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. And finally, question 19, how do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. Beloved, those um, first three questions we uh, somewhat dealt with last week as Reverend Hamstra preached about Christ the mediator who is a true and righteous man, yet also true God, which both Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6 really focus on. And so in our time together this afternoon, I'd like to, to give our attention to question 19. How do we come to know this good news? How is the, the good news of this divine yet human mediator who is righteous and who restores to us righteousness and life, how is that good news revealed to us? How do we come to know this? And the answer the catechism gives is, is that it's not just in one or two places, but is revealed all throughout the scripture. That the principal point the Bible makes is this good gospel news. That God reveals it already in paradise, that's what we read of in Genesis 3.15. He then proclaims it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and even foreshadows it, even, even gives us pictures pointing to what he will do in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. The Catechism is making the point that that good gospel news in Genesis 3.15 revealed yet dimly would be progressively illumined throughout the rest of the Bible. It would be something like a seed that would be planted in the ground and then sprout forth until the flower of the gospel would, would burst forth in the fullness of time. That's so what I want to do um, this afternoon is look at, at Genesis 3.15 and these twin themes of, of the serpent being stricken and of the heads of his seed being crushed and, and trace these two themes throughout the Bible to see the beauty of God progressively revealing this plan of salvation 
in a way that causes the whole storyline of the Bible to focus on what God would do through his son. We'll look first at the skull-crushing seed of the woman in the garden, then in the law, and then in the prophets, both the, the former and latter prophets, and then in the writings, and finally in the New Testament, tracing this theme through these five sections of God's word, and my hope is it will come away amazed at the beauty of God's unfolding plan of redemption. And they will come away impressed by the, the Christ-centeredness of Scripture and assured of the certain victory of the seed of the woman over Satan, sin, and death. So first, the skull-crushing seed of the woman in the garden. And this is what we read of in Genesis chapter 3, where the, the serpent, who is Satan, Genesis 3.1 tells us is, is more cunning than any of the beasts of the field. He, he makes a direct attack on the word of God spoken and tries to sow doubt in Eve's mind about the authority and the sufficiency of, of the word of God and, and tries to make God out to be withholding something good from his children. By the way, those are two of the same things that he seeks to do today. He seeks to sow a doubt in the minds of God's people about the authority and sufficiency and inerrancy of his words. And he also tries to make us think that the commands in God's word are not for our good, but rather are to harm us. He tries to make us think, for instance, that the seventh commandment regarding um, adultery and sexual purity is, is not to protect us from shame and, and guilt or ruined relationships down the road, but, but actually because God is some sort of cosmic killjoy, that he wants to steal our happiness. And so he gives these overly restrictive and oppressive rules. Or he tries to make us think that the fourth commandment regarding the Lord's Day is, is not because God on this day of rest, as it says in Isaiah 58, wants to, to make us delight in him and cause us to ride on the heights and, and feed us with the heritage of Jacob, but rather because he wants to steal our joy. These are the sorts of, of ways that Satan seeks to make us think that God's word, even as he does in Genesis 3, is not for our good. And yet we see in Genesis chapter 3 that the real thief is Satan who comes, as Jesus says in John 10, to steal, kill, and destroy. And so his temptation of the woman ends not in joy and, and being like God as he promised, but rather in the image of God being marred as we saw a few weeks ago. And in Adam and Eve being filled with, with shame such that they would go and hide from their maker, the one who they were made to enjoy communion with. Listening to Satan leads to tears. It leads, as we saw in verses 12 and 13 and 14, to, to blame shifting, to conflict within marriage and within their family. Think of, of Cain and Abel. Ultimately, it leads to death. And yet God is gracious and when the curse of sin comes into the world, he, he makes a promise, a gracious promise that is, in fact, embedded in a proclamation of judgment where he says to, to the serpent, on your belly you shall go, and, and all the, the days of your life you shall eat the dust of the ground, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." 
Notice already in that first gospel promise how the grace of God and the justice of God are not at odds. We've heard in the last few weeks a little bit about the, the judgment of hell. Or last week about God's judgment in Job 27. And my guess would be that, that at least a, a few of you find that a bit unnerving. You would rather not hear about God's justice. You, you would rather only hear about his grace. But I want you to see how the inauguration of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15 begins with a promise of judgment. The two are not at odds. But in fact, God reveals his grace through the judgment of his enemy. And so from the very beginning of the covenant of grace here in Genesis 3.15, where God's people have sinned and, and he must now relate to them in grace, his gracious, condescending promise contains a, a promise of the judgment of the serpent. And that promise, like a little seed planted in the ground, is going to take root as, as the covenant of grace is, is progressively unfolded throughout the rest of the scriptures so that God will give us little pictures And little foreshadowings, little glimpses, a little bit like what we heard this morning, of just what it's going to look like for this skull-crushing seed of the woman to come and slay the serpent. One theologian, James Hamilton, says the life and death struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is the plot conflict which informs the rest of the biblical narrative, the whole of the biblical narrative. It is this promise of judgment and of grace that will inform the rest of the Bible story. That's why the church fathers called this verse in Genesis 3 the proto-evangelium, the first gospel promise, which already informs the very next chapter, Genesis 4, where there is this conflict between the two seeds. You think of, of Cain, who is seed of the serpent, and Abel, who is the son of the promise. The seed of the serpent first mentioned in Genesis 3.15 refers not to literal snakes but to people like Cain who as you read through Genesis 4 you see that his actions incur God's curse in the same way the serpents did. And you see that from a number of different parallels between Genesis 3 and, and, and Genesis 4 that if we had more time we could look at. And, then, and the Bible then goes on to trace the genealogy of Cain in Genesis 4 over And against that of Seth in Genesis 5, who was born after uh, Abel dies, and and it says that God appoints for Eve another seed. And the Bible then goes on to trace these two lines. Genealogies are not insignificant. The rest of the Bible's storyline traces the ongoing battle between the snake's offspring and the woman's. That, by the way, is what's going on in Genesis 6 when the sons of God intermarry with the daughters of man. That that is intermarrying, uh, intermarrying between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which brings about the judgment of God in the flood. Reminding us that if these two seeds are in conflict, then we must not marry with those who we're at war with. Nor should we date them. This, This theme of the conflict between the seed of the woman and and the seed of the serpent, it it continues on into the law and into the prophets. 
So what I want to do is, is take this theme that is introduced in the garden and now trace it through each of these sections of Scripture to show how all of God's Word is leading to the fulfillment of that first promise in Christ. And so first in, in the law, or next in, in the law, those uh, first five books of Moses, I'll give you two examples. As the, the promise line narrows to the family of Shem in Genesis 9 and 10, and then to Abram in Genesis 12, and God makes a promise to Abram that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and they will inherit the promised land. Remember, he then says, but they will only inherit that after 400 years of affliction in a foreign land. So that eventually um, leads Abram's descendants into Egypt, where now the seed of the serpent takes the form of wicked Pharaoh, the Egyptian taskmasters who blaspheme God's name. And you see this in Exodus chapter 7 where God demonstrates his power over Pharaoh by having Moses' staff turn into a snake that then swallows up the serpents of Pharaoh's magicians. In fact, it is the case that in ancient Egypt there was serpent worship. And so God is here turning, uh, taunting Pharaoh and his gods and saying, I will swallow you up which is exactly what happens at the crossing of the Red Sea where it says in Exodus 15, 11, and 12 that God stretched out his hand and the earth swallowed them up. Which actually the psalmist picks up on in Psalm 74 referring to Pharaoh as Leviathan the serpent saying you divided the sea by your strength, you broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters, you broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. The Bible in Exodus 15 and in Psalm 74 interprets the crossing of the Red Sea as an initial fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. It is a crushing of the serpent's head. And then God leads them through the wilderness eventually to the promised land. But before they get there, there is another evil king who seeks to bring about the destruction of God's people. On the plains of Moab, just across the Jordan River from the Promised Land, King Balak hires a a sorcerer of sorts named Balaam to curse God's people instead of bless them. He hires him to try to get him to do what, what the serpent did, to bring about God's curse. But God will not allow Balaam to curse, and, and so the words that come forth out of his mouth are words of blessing. Words of blessing that contain allusions back to to the Garden of Eden and to the promise that was given to Abraham and and to the promise of Genesis 49 given to Judah that that the scepter will not depart from his line. And in all of these ways that that the the promises and and prophecies of Balaam are alluding back to these earlier promises, it is showing us that what Balaam is is saying is part of the development of that Genesis 3.15 promise leading up to the grand climax of of Balaam's oracles where he says in Numbers 24 that he sees in the latter days a star that would come forth out of Jacob, a scepter, that is a a royal image of, of a king that would rise out of Israel who would deliver his people by crushing the foreheads of Moab and destroying the sons of pride. 
Numbers 24, 17, that great messianic promise that the rabbis and the church fathers loved to quote where God promises that that the Moabites and the Edomites and the Amalekites, the totality of the serpent seed will be crushed by the one who would come to restore us to righteousness and life. The unfolding promise then continues in the prophets. And when we speak of the prophets, we think of Jesus in Luke 24, speaking of how all these different um, areas of Scripture point to him. When we, when we speak of the prophets in the Old Testament, there are the, the former prophets and the latter prophets. So the former prophets are those um, books of history like Joshua, Judges, um, Samuel, and Kings. And those were given a number of, of prophetic pictures, a number of little foreshadowings of the crushing of the serpent's head and the book of Judges once the people are in the land and, and are then invaded by Canaanites in Judges 4. It says that the commander of the Canaanite army, one named Sisera, says that he is killed by a woman named Jael who hammers a tent peg into his skull. And then in the next chapter, as Deborah the prophetess uh, sings of, of this victory, she says, she, uh, speaking of Jael, she crushed his head. It's a little bit less clear in the New King James, but, but in the ESV, Judges 5.26 reads, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. In a double allusion back to Genesis 3.15 and, and Numbers 24, another fulfillment of the head of the serpent seed being crushed. We keep reading just a few chapters later in Judges 9, Abimelech, the the son of Gideon, reveals himself to actually uh, be like Cain, the the seed of the serpent, by killing his 70 brothers and seeking to make himself king. But God defeats him, and the way that he does is by a woman up on the top of a tower dropping a millstone that lands on his head. Judges 9.53, crushing his skull. Do you hear the allusion back to Genesis 3? Do you you hear it repeating itself over and over? And not only do we see this theme of of heads crushed, but also of serpents slain. 1 Samuel 11, when Israel is is first given a king in that next stage of, of redemptive history, the very first enemy to come against them is an Ammonite king named Nahash, which literally means snake. And this snake who comes and wants to to put out the right eyes of all the men in Jabesh-Gilead and bring reproach upon all Israel. Then it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, and his anger was greatly roused, and he killed the, the Ammonites until the heat of day, once again crushing the seed of the serpent, crushing the snake, This um, section of the Old Testament, the the former prophets, we see heads crushed, we see um, serpents slain. In fact, in 1 Samuel 17, in the story of David and Goliath, we see these two themes come together. As that Philistine giant is described in 1 Samuel 17.5 as being armed with a coat of mail, which, which is to say scaly armor like a snake. That's how the NASB or NIV or CSB translate it, scaly armor. The author is hinting by its, its description of Goliath that he is seed of the serpent. And wouldn't you know it, he dies from a mortal head wound. And then the exclamation point, David comes and cuts off his head. 
The singular seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. One theologian writes, it is remarkable to note the instances of death by head wound in the Old Testament. Sisera, Abimelech, Goliath, Absalom, many of the enemies of God have their heads crushed. When a scene or event is repeated in this way, it is a deliberate and and theologically grounded detail. All of these are types of the serpent whose seed the head of the woman will crush. You see this thread running through the Old Testament. This thread that the latter prophets will pick up also, both the the theme of of serpents being slain and also of heads being crushed. I mentioned just a few of these in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 27, in, in that great judgment oracle, it speaks of Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, being slain. Or Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 30, um, both of them speak of God crushing the head of the wicked. And both of those speak of that in the context of Jeremiah prophesying God raising up his great Davidic king, the one who will be called the Lord our righteousness. And it says there that the fury of the Lord will fall violently on the head of the wicked. And in the latter days, you will understand this. Then in Habakkuk 3, these two themes of of, um, serpents and head crushing come together again in Habakkuk's prophetic psalm of praise when he says, Lord, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for uh, salvation with your anointed. You crushed the head from the house of the wicked. And then in the Hebrew it says, laying bare from tail to neck in a reference to the dragon that would be stricken by the Lord's anointed king. Do you see how how the messianic hope throughout the Old Testament is tied up in this serpent-slaying and head-crushing imagery? The same is true in the writings, the the Psalms, and poetic books. I'll give just a few examples. We've been um, seeing this in the book of, of Job, this Leviathan serpent imagery that that comes up. We saw it in uh, Job 26, verses 12 and 13. It comes up again in the climax of the book in Job 41. So we'll look at that in greater detail when we get there. But, But what you have in Job 41 at the very climax of the book is a poetic description of God's power over the dragon whom he pierces through the suffering of his servant. The entire book is cast in the light of Genesis 3.15, not just in the suffering of God's servant, but also in the piercing of the serpent or in the Psalms. Why is it that so often in the Psalms of judgment you have this, this serpent imagery where the enemies of God are described in Psalm 58 as being estranged from the womb, speaking lies with the poison of the serpent under their tongues? Leading David to say, break their teeth in their mouth, O God, and destroy them. Psalm 83, likewise, has allusions to the craftiness of God's enemies who are are aligning themselves with that crafty serpent. In Psalm 140, it says, they sharpen their tongues like a serpent. So often, the Psalms of Judgment contain this this serpent imagery. In fact, those are three of, of the most graphic of those Psalms. And each of them are drawing our attention back to Genesis 3. 
We don't have time to go through all of them, but at least 10 of the Psalms speak directly of, of the snake or the serpent or Psalm 74, Leviathan. And they also speak of heads being crushed. Remember already in, in Psalm 2, one of those introductory Psalms, it is, is part of the, this gateway into the Psalter. The enemies of the Lord's anointed are being dashed in pieces. Or you can think of Psalm 68 where it speaks of their heads being crushed. Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 110. Or the infamous Psalm 137 where the children of Babylon are dashed against the rock. The seed of the serpent, the children of spiritual Babylon having their heads crushed by the singular blessed one who will come. So many of the Psalms are informed by this Genesis 3.15 thread that is running through the Bible leading us eventually to the New Testament where Christ's enemies, the Pharisees and religious leaders are described as a brood of vipers, Matthew 3, Matthew 12, Matthew 23, where his disciples are told in Luke 10 and Mark 16 that they will trample on serpents where Christ's apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, is is bitten in Acts 28 by a viper that he then shakes off into the fire and suffers no harm. God over and over is giving these little pictures and and details to tell us of the victory of the seed of the woman over the serpent. The victory of the seed of the woman over the serpent, which culminates not just in Christ's victory through the death of the cross, but ultimately at his return, where we read in the book of Revelation. of of a male child who would rule over the nations, one born of a woman, speaking of Christ's incarnation, and it says that he was born of a woman to slay the dragon and cast him out, even allowing his people to share in that victory through suffering as they love not their lives, even unto death, but share in the victory of their Lord, silencing the accuser and crushing his head through sharing in the suffering of their crucified Lord, the Lamb who would bleed for them. It speaks of in Revelation 12, and all this is, is why Paul says in Romans sixteen twenty that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you see this theme that permeates the pages of the Bible, how this mediator was promised in Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6, the one spoken of in Genesis 3, God not only reveals in the garden, but proclaims through the holy patriarchs and prophets and in the law and historical books and prophetic writings, both through prophecy and and typology and prophetic foreshadowing, which show us over and over and over that God will raise up a deliverer to crush the one who brought us into the misery of Lord's Days 2 through 4. And this judgment, this this salvation through judgment is good news. Good news that Lord's Day 6 wants us to see is revealed on every page of the Bible. Luke 24 does the same thing. John 5.39, over and over showing us that this is the theme of the Scriptures. Christ's victory over Satan through suffering. So let me give you just um, five brief applications as you think about this head-crushing seed of the woman theme revealed from Genesis to Revelation. Um, First, as as we consider this, we should be impressed by the Christ-centered nature of the Bible. 
that the Bible is fundamentally God's revelation of this meteor, that it is fundamentally a messianic document, and that's why running through it from Genesis to Revelation are these allusions over and over to that original promise of this mediator. Reminding us that this book is not fundamentally a a, a philosophy or theology textbook, that it's not, necessary, it's not fundamentally a moral how-to guide for, for how to live a better life and, and get to heaven. It is the revelation of the one who came down from heaven to deliver you and bring you up. And so we must read it in a way that keeps that front and center. Moms and dads, not turning Old Testament stories into Aesop's fables about uh, daring to be a Daniel or being brave like David. Those things may be secondary, but primary is what God is doing in revealing his plan of salvation in this serpent-slaying, skull-crushing seed of the woman. Keep that front and center. By the way, just as an aside, it's interesting as you study the the, um, the development of of liberal theology, particularly in Germany in the, the 19th century, um, the, the attempts that, that are made to, to moralize the, the Old Testament stories in a way that, that de-emphasizes these biblical theological themes because if we can make these Old Testament stories not about Christ but fundamentally about how we can be better people, how we can share our lunch like the, the boy in, in the uh, multiplication of the loaves or how we can be brave like Daniel or like David... And the fundamental message of the gospel is lost. And and so um, theological liberalism in the the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries uh, sought to to moralize these stories. And and so um, in our Sunday school curriculum and in the way that we teach our children about Old Testament stories, we we need to detest that that kind of um, anti-Christ-centered approach to the Bible. Those are not inappropriate applications perhaps to make secondarily, but primary is Christ at front and center. And then second, in doing that and in keeping Christ at the center of, of, of what we're reading, not just at, at home with our children, but also in our own um, daily Bible reading uh, here from the pulpit, in all of this, pay attention to the details. Pay attention to the details. How often in all of those passages that we just looked at is what God is is doing, how often is it not revealed in the details? In the precise body part with, with which the enemy in which the enemy is struck. In the precise uh, metaphor in the Psalms, in the armor of Goliath or the serpentine imagery in the book of Job. Pay attention to the details. God's word as the inspired revelation of his plan of salvation is inspired down to the very details. Third, as you read the Bible Christ-centeredly and as you pay attention to the details, marvel at God's unfolding plan of salvation. Question 19 is meant to make us pause and ponder the the beauty of biblical theology, the the beauty of this this tapestry of redemption that is woven all the way from the beginning to end of the Bible. It's, It's meant to lead us to worship, not just at the details of this sacred text, but at the one they point to. That's what I understand in a book on this serpent theme in the Bible, exalt in the serpent slayer. 
How should you feel when you think about what Christ the serpent slayer has done in in slaying the dragon? As you think about what he will finally do, you should feel elated. You should fall on your knees to worship the ultimate knight in shining armor, the ultimate dragon slayer, exult in him. Let this lead you to worship. Fourth, trust in the final victory of this serpent slayer. We could have continued on into Revelation 20 where where the dragon is mentioned again and is cast into the lake of fire. That's where this theme ends. The one who has already defeated the serpent through his death on the cross, through the blood of the lamb, and who has, has, has already guaranteed the final victory, will himself cast him in to the lake of fire. So trust in his final victory. Even though we overcome now through, through suffering like, like Christ and like Job and like those saints in Revelation 12 who love not their lives even unto death, believe that in that suffering he is being trampled under our feet and he will one day be cast into the lake of fire forever. And so fifth, side with the serpent slayer. Don't listen to or imitate the serpent Don't listen to the ways that he tries to undermine the authority of the word of God. Don't listen to the ways where he tries to paint the commandments of God not as good but as oppressive as if God is trying to steal your joy. Do not listen to or imitate the serpent but side with the one who conquers. Which Lord's Day 7 next week will say that we do not just through a sure knowledge of this mediator who is revealed in God's word, but also wholehearted trust that because of the merit of this Savior, by grace alone, God grants not only to others, but also to you, also to me, the forgiveness of sin, eternal righteousness, and salvation. Restoring to us all that Satan stole. So the catechism and these themes in the word of God are urging us to confess with our mouth and to believe with our heart all that is promised in the gospel of this true and righteous man who is also true God, the only mediator and the only way of salvation. Confess him by faith. Trust in his death. Trust in his bruised heel by which he crushes the serpent and trust in his final victory which is ours too. By faith alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed as we stand and and consider your words. We thank you for it. Every promise contained in it, which is yes and amen in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond to this word in true faith. That you would help us to respond to it with grateful praise, exalting in all that Christ has done and defeating Satan, sin, and death and winning our salvation. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that he's done. We thank and praise you for the blood of the lamb by which the dragon is overcome. We thank you for his bruised heel, his pierced side, his suffering and agony by which the serpent is crushed, by which our sins are paid for. Lord, we pray that as we 
respond now in song. You would help us to respond in a way that is fitting with grateful praise for all that you have done through this mediator. We pray in Jesus' name.